systems in her community and their repeated arrest of her self-proclaimed black nationalist brother, the brutalization and incarceration of other brothers, even to the point of killing them, and this was in the 90s, killing them still, right? Not knowing she even had rights, as no one told her she did, not on campus, not in her community, and to some degree, not even in her home. Mm. In terms of, you know, how do you, it, when you encounter a situation like this, how do you navigate it? What happens afterwards? So not feeling safe, with no one to tell, as the quintessential strong black woman with the privilege of a college education while her brother was not in college, right? With no adv advocate to fight for her and thinking she had no support at all, she didn't make it through that first week back in college. Mm -hmm. She dropped out, never to return again, until she was almost 40 years old. She's actually in school now. And she still, still has yet to graduate after mustering up the strength to even walk onto a college campus. And she was 19. So that's over 20 years of an impact and an effect and not having disclosed the sexual assault until she was well in her 30s because of carrying that weight, right? There's that weight that we all carry, right? So the weight of the mattress, the weight that the, the, the student at Columbia, Emma, carries, you know, it looks the same and it looks different for us in our communities. So there are cyclical relationships. When you think about the fact that Christina did not go back to school, we can look at the intersection between poverty and sexual assault and violence against women. There's the cyclical relationship between violence and between poverty. Dropping out of school has then set her up for a series of low-income jobs, for a series of uh, uh, um, you know, other attempts at making it in terms of economic security. The issue of race is critical as far as the social contract that exists between black men and black women. It's existed for a very long time. That tells us that we are not to vilify black men, that we are not to speak on the things that happen at the intercommunity level, that we are not to take opportunity of education from black men, that we are, not, we are to cut them a break, even at the risk of our own bodies, the risk of our own <coughs> safety, our sis the safety of our sisters and the safety of our children. And so there are sexual and gender codes. There are still race codes that we ourselves have internalized, not only as black women, but as gender non-conforming folks who have to deal with a sexual politics that is rooted in homophobia, in patriarchy, mm. in transphobia, or patriarchy, and, you know, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, or all derivatives of that. And so, you know, these, these are real and they exist. The, the idea of not placing an already marginalized community at risk for further harm, or marginalization, or attack by media, or by police, is one that is very real. How does a black woman, how does a black survivor report or organize within a context that, it, it, I think within the past 10 years, uh, um, black women 
have really exponentially increased, you know, the prison industrial complex. It's increased mm -hmm. by, what, 800%, mm -hmm. right? Within a context where we have Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, mm -hmm. Eric Garner, how do you then come forward and talk about what has happened to you? How do you yeah. then point the finger at another black brother? How do you then <clears throat> sort of mitigate, you know, these, these, these two real facts and realities that, you know, the, the, as the statistics, some statistics say that there are more black men in prisons than there are on college campuses. And so, I should move up my, uh, so that's, that's part of a, a, of a very real um, issue in terms of reporting. So when we begin to talk about uh, organizing and student leadership, when we begin to engage black women on campus or in community, uh, one of the issues and the place that we begin from is the place of healing. Mm -hmm. We have to begin from that place of healing. Because if we don't, when, if we don't begin in that place of crisis intervention and being those first responders that, can, that then can get that black woman to a place where, okay, we are processing, we're addressing race at all times. We're addressing gender at all times. We're addressing sexuality at all times. We're addressing the historical expectations from black women. We're addressing the stereotypical uh, uh, um, uh, expectations and also the ideology about black women as unrapeable, mm -hmm. as not the perfect victim, as extremely difficult to prove you know, their case, as women who are just used to taking abuse because people don't have the analysis of the historical factors right. that got us to this point yeah. where we sacrifice because it's an expectation. It's not just an expectation. We willingly mm -hmm. sacrifice. And that's not just black women. LGBTQ black folks mm -hmm. willingly sacrifice for the sake of community as well. Mm -hmm. And so when there is violence that occurs against us, we choose between our lives and you know the other black lives. Mm -hmm. So whose lives really matter? I am really grateful that there's been this push within the context of the Black Lives Matter, Ahmad, yes, <laughs> you know, to really center the voices of black women um, within the context of racial justice movements and to really look at issues of sexual violence, not only in the personal, but in the political and in the state fear. And so if we're looking at it across these different fears, within these different spheres, then we think about the fact that the second highest form of police misconduct is sexual misconduct. Mm. And so having to hold that <laughs> is another <clears throat> totally different layer. Looking at the history of um, legal system and the legal systems and the handling of black women's cases, back to, from Jim Crow until now, it is less likely for a black woman to get justice in a courtroom most of us look at you know, the issue of it's less likely for a black man who was accused of a crime to get justice in a courtroom, but research shows that it is extremely less likely for a black victim to, who chooses to use the legal system to also get justice because of the expectations around her gender performance, the, 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 the performance of the, of the, uh, um, the credible victim. The, the performance of the, uh, you know, the perfect victim who was, you know, bopped over the head and then, you know, and, and this, this is something that we can talk about across race, that occurs across race. And so, you know, I think, I think, 
after after you know gi giving this 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 piece around really looking at the intersectional issues, the poverty, the gender, the race that is ever present, history is also ever present. Uh, um, I really want to talk about too the lack of organizing and what are some of the solutions that can occur, right? So if we look at this through a a a um, appreciative an appreciative inquiry sort of framework. Then we can ask ourselves questions like, where are students organizing on certain campuses? And where is it happening at its best? Where is it happening at its optimal best, right? So whether that's on a mainstream campus or an HBCU. So we can look at the students on Columbia who are bold, who are brave, who are like unapologetic. They're doing policy advocacy work. So that's working. So then what is it that needs to happen to be able to integrate black students into that, into that um, organizing? Not just integrate, but equally center their needs. How do they arrive at a point where they can become empowered and feel uh, uh, um, that they can mobilize around policies that may what? Do what? Get students out of, uh, you know, ju get justice. And what does justice look like in a lot of these things? You get expelled, mm -hmm. right? And if it, if it doesn't happen off campus, you send someone to jail. And so we need to look at the impact of race. We need to look at different models, I think, uh, uh, um, regarding how to seek justice. We need to define justice for ourselves. What does that look like? Even within the context of multiracial, multiethnic, and multigroup organizing, if that is transformative justice, what will that look like? How will that satisfy all of us? How do we make sure that we prioritize both ourselves and we prioritize our communities? How do we make it explicit that a violation, how do we engage in these dialogues that Neil has been talking about with black men that make it explicit that a violation against any member of our community, Absolutely. whether by police, Absolutely. whether by an intimate partner, whether by a brother on campus, that it all undermines the life the security, the viability of our communities and of our, of our entire campus. And so, you know, we can talk more about some of these frameworks and what, what that looks like. But I'd like to, uh, I don't know how, what my time is, but I want to open it up from here uh, uh, to back to Belinda. <laughs> <laughs> share walking in from what was probably a morning of hell yes. getting here so <laughs> thank you thank you thank you um so uh we want to hear what everyone's questions and comments and thoughts are but we want to start with the students first so um let me just introduce quickly who they are um or or for just students a few moments ago um uh so first we'll hear from Ahmad Green who's a rising senior at Williams a member of Williams students of color um uh can we organization and an activist both on Black Lives Matter and on campus sexual assault at Williams and who's um, interning now with Black Women's Blueprint. Then we'll hear from Zoe Rodolfi Starr, just graduated from Columbia, as you heard, um, with, and she wears many hats, <coughs> Year Year 9, National Carry That Weight Campaign, the Fund for Safer Columbia, and No Red Tape, so a variety of local and national student-led organizations. And finally, Dylan Diake, also working with Black Women's Blueprint, recent graduate of the NYU Silver School of Social Work, who's both a member of the NYU Students of Color Collective and the Sexual Violence Awareness Committee. And they're just going to each give us a couple minutes worth of reflections on what they heard as it relates to your experience working on your own campuses. 
Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for having us. Um, I guess the, the best way for me to start would be to talk a bit about what brings me to this work. Um, I think it's important to name that in this space. Um, so for me, I um, was raised in a family of black women. Um, all women in my household, all men were gone. Uh, most of the men had been incarcerated um, or were dead at the hands of the state or um, were just gone. Right, um, for a number of different reasons. Um, so I was raised by my mother, my grandmother, and aunties. Um, and many of the women in my life were survivors, um, not just rape, but also gender-based violence. Mm. Um, so before I was three years old, I witnessed my father beating my mother. Um, he beat her while she was pregnant. Um, and then while that's happening, at the same time while I'm at daycare, I was being molested um, mm. by my Babysitter. So all of these things are um, really, really dear to me for a number of different reasons. Um, and then in college, um, a number of my closest friends, who, who just happened to be black women, um, experienced rape on campus. Um, and I was, you know, someone they would confide in about the things they were experiencing. Um, and there was a general lack of urgency on the on the side of administration about these issues. Um, and I think there was one moment in particular um, at a black student union event where a survivor, who isn't a friend of mine, but just someone who's a part of the Blackstone Union, was triggered by the presence of an alum who had came back on campus who had raped her. And what we would call a frat house, though it's not a fraternity. Um, and I was, in many ways, kind of thrust into a role as a first, first like a respondent, essentially. In that moment, I think it was then that I actually kind of really came to this work. Um, I saw how triggered she was, and I saw how security responded when they got on the scene. Um, they were already um, kind of escalating the situation, um, in many ways trying to get who just happened to be a black man um, kind of riled up in a way to get him arrested. I saw that happening now. At the same time, they weren't actually responding to the survivor. Um, so all of these things taken together uh, kind of put me in conversation with uh, the Men of Color Collective on campus, um, the Black Student Union, um, as well as um, Williams just hired a director of sexual assault prevention who um, she also works with, um, Meg Basong. And we've been in conversation about um, having culturally um, adept um, models for dealing with sexual violence in black communities. Um, so last December, we planned Black Healing Week, uh, which had a focus on um, sexual violence, gender-based violence, violence against LGBTQ students. Um, and in many ways, it kind of turned into a larger uh, campus conversation about um, sexual violence. Um, and there, were, there was a, main, uh, um, a very mainstream case that kind of resurfaced on campus that the administration was doing, working very diligently to sweep under the rug and you know, quiet everyone down. And um, Williams has a tendency to move, remove articles that are, you know, if you search the college's name, you won't find articles that relate to sexual violence. Um, and, you know, we know that institutions do these kinds of things um, to protect reputation. Um, but at any rate, um, all of those things taken together, um, the college uh, hired a journalist who was supposed to write an article for the alums about campus uh, rape and sexual assault, interviewed a number of activists on campus who were predominantly students of color, um, spent, took a lot of our time, our energy, and our efforts. And when the actual article came out, it was very white. There were only white male students uh, put on the cover as male activists on these mm. issues. 
I wasn't even featured, and I'm like one of the most outspoken ones mm. on the issue on campus. Um, and a number of the black women who I have seen like spent hours laboring on these issues were not even featured in the article. Um, and when they were featured, they were misquoted, very badly misquoted, um, to make Williams look good. Um, and I think, um, you know, we went to the administration, we complained. Um, and it was just, we had, it's just, you get fatigued, right? It's, you're just tired of always doing the same thing over and over again. Um, we were going to write a, a piece about it. It was like, why are we doing all this labor? Mm. I really just don't care. Um, so I think, you know, kind of to echo Farah and Neil's points, I think a lot of black women on campus are just like, we don't trust these people. We will keep this within our own circles. Mm. Um, and I know a number of black women on campus have created healing spaces for themselves. Uh, where they do, you know, a number of ritualistic and, and very deep spiritual practices, yoga, um, those sorts of things, a healing justice framework um, that's very much intracommunal. Um, we are trying to figure out a way to think through restorative justice models, um, though it's very hard to work through those kinds of things, to put a harm doer in front of the one who has been harmed. Um, and that's something many of us can't necessarily do for a number of different reasons. Um, no one should have to forgive anybody, right, if you don't yeah. want to forgive anybody. Um, and, and at the same way, a number of harm doers don't feel that they've done anything wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, Neil's work is so important to really get men and boys to think through um, healthy masculinity, what is patriarchy, what does it mean to be complicit and to also perpetuate those kinds of violence. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. tremendously grateful to um, be a part of this space. I think, you know, for a lot of us who've been doing this work, some of us for a few years, some of us for many, many years, you can get so caught up in the day-to-day -day grind and there's always more to do than you have the staff energy or capacity or emotional stamina for. Um, it can be so easy to get kind of caught up in the grind that uh, I think we don't always give ourselves the time to really reflect and to really engage in these kinds uh, of dialogue, which you know, can sometimes be very challenging, and, and also holding each other and holding ourselves accountable to meaningfully incorporating intersectionality and diverse voices, and to centering those uh, most marginalized and most intimately affected by this work is not always an automatic response. And so, holding each other and ourselves accountable to that can be challenging. So, I'm feeling very grateful for the space and opportunity to be doing that here with all of you. Um, I'll just say two things briefly. What I'm hearing, you know, today is is making me think about two elements of our of our work. Um, the first of which is is really resisting what can sometimes be an overwhelming onslaught to what feels like to me is an overwhelming onslaught of efforts to criminalize sexual assault as a response. Right. I think for policymakers and even for some service providers and nonprofits who are well-intentioned, you know, students, survivors um, have done so much work to raise this issue to bring it to the forefront of public attention. And then people say, we hear you, we're going to do something about this, and they jump in and create some new NYPD protocol. And that's really not what we're asking for. If you're actually listening to survivors, you know that is not what people are asking for. And you know, Farah and, and the story that you shared with us so poignantly articulate why that simply is not even a possibility for so many people. It was relying on, you know, a system that has, has and does actively perpetrate violence against these communities 
whether it's institutional in terms of the <coughs> prison industrial complex or at the individual level of police brutality and um, and even sexual uh, sexual violence. You know, police officers are the profession with the highest rate of domestic violence reports against mm. themselves, yeah. right? Mm. So the ways that, you know, violence is enshrined in this particular subset of the community makes it completely a, a non-viable response. <coughs> but it also, it misses the point of what survivors and advocates across the board are trying to say about what we need on campuses. And to me, that's why so much of the work we do with Title IX, um, in my mind, is kind of transformative. Because Title IX is a civil rights law. Right, it says, no person in a university shall be discriminated against upon the basis of their gender. It doesn't say anything explicitly about sexual violence. It says, we prohibit discrimination. <coughs> Subsequent Supreme Court cases then interpreted sexual harassment and violence as a form of discrimination. And that's why schools have a legal mandate to have these kinds of grievance procedures in place. That's where, that, that's where these campus um, adjudication processes come from. So what you're adjudicating at the campus level, what these processes are supposed to be set up to investigate and respond to, is the issue that a student's civil right to access their education is being infringed upon. They're not adjudicating whether a crime has been committed. They're not adjudicating whether this is a bad man. They're saying, was our student, was, it, was their civil right to access their education impeded? And to me, that's really, a, it has the potential. We're not there yet but it has the potential to really transform the way that we're conceptualizing violence and to really sort of significantly shift the frame for how we're designing solutions to respond to student and survivors' needs on campus. So when I'm hearing you know, all of the different ways you know, that, that you're talking about, that, that the students that you, you know, work with and yourself as well have been affected and you were sharing you know, all of these kind of interwoven elements of somebody's identity and somebody's existence on campus, I'm thinking you know, these systems need to be set up to address that. And legally that's their obligation, right? But we're not there yet. And I think a huge part of that is we are kind of lacking in models. There aren't any schools personally that I can point to that I would say are doing it correctly. Unfortunately, um, we really have yet to see uh, widespread or sort of widely recognized, widely recognized as successful models for what restorative justice looks like in practice, although potentially University of Michigan is a model that I'm hopeful about. Um, and so when we're looking at these systems, I think that Title IX is an important um, approach and it offers us kind of a legal framework for really reconceptualizing the way that we're thinking about violence and the way that we're designing systems on campus to respond to the, com the complexity of students' needs um, and their identities. Um, the other thing you know I want uh, to mention is sort of the other one of the other hats that I wear as well to point out through the Carry That Weight campaign. Um, I'm the I guess I was the director, but now we're merging with Know Your Nine, so I'm, I don't know what I am. To be determined. But I'm still doing all the work. <laughs> so I'm the person doing the work. Um, and, uh, and so much of what we do in that campaign is really centered on individual narratives, right? It's really about amplifying, you know, it started with Emma and her piece, uh, but so many survivors across the country felt that it resonated with them and it really struck a powerful chord. Um, as you were talking about this, this 
symbol of carrying this physical burden that, you know, permeates every aspect of your life, in particular in a campus setting where so much of your academic, professional, personal lives are, you know, enmeshed. Um, I think that was really powerful for a lot of people. And so a lot of our work in that campaign has centered around amplifying voices. But, you know, and this is kind of a moment of self-accountability that I was talking about. The reality is the public narratives have predominantly focused on white women at wealthy uh, private institutions. And that's a real problem. That's a real problem. There is so much power in hearing a story and saying, hey, that sounds like me. And that is something, you know, that is the only thing that ever enabled me to come forward um, and talk about my experiences and get help is hearing other people's stories and seeing myself in those narratives. And when we're not uh, meaningfully and, uh, I mean, really when we're silencing, whether by an act of deliberate silencing or by sort of <coughs> complicity uh, in allowing our narratives as white women or my narratives as a white woman, um, to overshadow those of, of people of color, of trans and queer people. It's a real problem. Uh, and I know that it doesn't lie just with survivors. So much of it has to do with the media and you know what they're willing uh, and able uh, to really be putting out there. For example, the Hunting Ground film um, you know, deliberately silenced some queer survivors, right? Because CNN said, it's too controversial. We want to stick to the issue here. Unacceptable, mm -hmm. truly unacceptable. I mean, even to those survivors, imagine being told that by CNN. No, we we can't go there. We can't go there, right? That's that's my life. What do you mean you can't go there? That is the experience, and so I think that that is a huge issue, um, and something that it really needs some intense and deliberate work to untangle um, from a lot of sides, survivors, advocacy organizations, media reporters, and a lot of people. And I'm uh, interested to hear what people uh, think about both. Thank you so much. Okay, Jill, I'm interested in your experience at NYU, and then we'll open it up for everybody. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you, Melinda, for having me here. Um, I feel very honored. Um, thank you, thank you so much. Um, so I'll just talk about kind of a little bit about my background and kind of how I got into this space of advocating um, to end sexual violence on campus. Um, just as Ahmed, um, being a black woman, um, having experienced domestic violence within my own home setting, um, and coming into a predominantly white institution, um, and experiencing um, what that means, um, and kind of navigating that has been very difficult in my life. Um, being on NYU, being a master's student, I think when I came here, I really was invested in social justice, advocacy, community organizing, and wanting to be engaged in that, um, and wanting to find others. But I think it was really hard for me because in a sense within social work, there has been this push to want to do private practice, to want to just do clinical work. Um, and so that was hard coming into the space and, and trying to find others that connect in that way. Um, and being able to connect with other students in that way has allowed me to organize on campus. And one of the ways um, that we did, we started um, Students of Color Collective, which is like a peer support group uh, for students of colors within the master's program. Um, and what we do is we're all about talking about our experiences, uh, being young men and women of color on campus and how, um, what, what that's like, what are the challenges, what are the, the good things, and how can we invest in social justice, how can we 
um, work with the faculty members to input things in the curriculum that um, highlights um, social justice and advocacy. Um, and then also within that, there has been a lot of conversations about sexual violence and this need on campus, this, this lack of support uh, for survivors um, and a disconnect between a lot of different schools between um, addressing this issue. There's a lot of, on NYU, there's a lot of um, organizations that um, work around this issue, but there's not that any connection. So me and a couple other students decided to apply for a grant through the school, um, Social Justice Diversity Grant. And within that grant, it gives students money to organize in some type of issue. And so what we um, prioritized was working with other students to organize, organize around this issue. So we decided to implement um, a committee, a planning committee um, for campus. And so within that committee, we brought back Take Back the Night on campus because that was in the shadows for many years. Um, and within Take Back the Night, we kind of changed it a little bit because usually Take Back the Night is um, rallying the streets and getting other people to join in. But we wanted it to be a space where um, not so pressing, but just a space where people can come and talk about um, their experiences with being a survivor. Um, and within that, it was very moving to be in that space. Um, and it kind of spurred more conversations and what else that we can do. And so we decided to do a um, conference, a two-day conference. And Farrah was a part of it, Black Women's Group, and that's how I got connected with her. Um, and it was basically garnering all organizations around the city um, to kind of have more conversations with students. Um, and so there's been a lot of work that NYU has done, and I've been very um, blessed to see that. There's a lot of things that still need to um, be talked about and highlighted. Um, and there is a lot of challenges, with not just within faculty members, but also with students, um, how to get them invested, how to get them um, into this field, into advocacy. Um, that has been like one of the biggest challenges. Thank you so much. So I want to open this up to anyone. Um, uh, I can, a few people around this table know me very well. I can really be a control freak, but I'm <laughs> going to try not to be. Um, uh, and, um, you know, start with perhaps questions that you may have or pulling for more analysis, or, or I know so many of you are working in this space already, how this corresponds to your own work and um, what you want to contribute to enrich the dialogue, anything, yeah. And please just get up, get more bagels, get some, I will model getting more coffee. <laughs> Thank you to all of you for those incredibly um, insightful comments, and wow, I'm just kind of like furiously taking notes, but um, Neil and Farah, I wanted to ask you, one thing that I have been, um, sorry, I'm Ali, I'm from Culture Respect, I think we're supposed to say that again. <laughs> and what um, is Culture Respect? Uh, thank you. Um, Culture of Respect is a nonprofit organization founded uh, by parents who uh, we work directly with colleges and universities to um, help them better respond and prevent sexual assault on campus. Uh, we have a, a comprehensive uh, blueprint of leading practices in prevention and response, and we're 
uh, rolling out a pilot on 14 campuses across the country. Which a lot has changed since I saw you last. We didn't have all that going on. That's I know. <laughs> um, so one thing that I have been thinking about a lot recently, and you know when you dive down that rabbit hole of reading comments and articles that you know you should not read, <laughs> you're like, stop reading. It's just going to get better. Um, is, you know, Neil, I think the work that you're doing is so amazing and starting with younger and younger men is so important to start setting up the social norms in a way that say that we don't tolerate this. This is not the behavior we want to see. But how all are you in your work or even in just your, your mental space um, thinking about how to deal with the fact that there are so many people out there who don't even acknowledge that we are living in a culture that is patriarchal and racist and, and you know, not queer friendly and LGBTQ friendly. How do, like, not only are they don't believe that those things exist in our culture, but those that they don't even it doesn't allow for that intersectionality that you're talking about. Like it it, it further prevents us mm -hmm. from bringing all those voices together in some ways. So how do you kind of wrestle with that? Well, I think you know one of the things that I said is is when when I talked about making it explicit that a violation against one member of the community is a violation against all members of the community, and it doesn't matter who the harm doer is. We begin from that place when we're talking about community and really community mobilization and raising awareness and education, right? And so because I'm gonna say it, race trumps everything else a lot of times in black communities. Um, we, we begin from that place. We begin with talking about racism, and then we begin. Then we move from there to talking about okay, racism as an ism, as a form of oppression. How then? You know how 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 do you experience that? So we really walk folks through personalizing that, and especially black men and black parents in particular. We're in the midst of conducting several parent focus groups to talk about and really get them to a place where they can think about sexual violence, think about gender uh, um, oppression uh, as, as, as something that is just as egregious, unacceptable as racism and racial violence. And so I think by beginning from where they are in the experience that they're constantly steeped in and they're constantly thinking about that they've been prioritizing for historical reasons, for very real reasons, then helps them to then translate that experience and begin to develop this sense of, wait a minute, there's also value. You have value as a person as well. And I do not want to be or replicate the same behavior that that cop or that the systems are or, 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 um, imposing on me or that are making my life miserable. I don't want to be in that place. Now, that may sound very simplistic, but once you walk in a room and you begin to talk about these things, the fights that erupt, that means there's transformation happening. Mm -hmm. they, you know, Patricia McFadden, who's like a transnational um, feminist from the African continent, talks about, you know, you have to get to a place, in order to get to a place of transformation, you have to allow that anger to come out. If you can't get to the place where you're angry about indignation, about, mm -hmm. about um, violation, then you can't move to that place of transformation. Mm -hmm. And so part of that anger is not only the anger about the way that they've been treated as black men, or even black women, in terms of looking at the racism, but it also then begins, to, we begin to cultivate that anger around how black women and girls are, have, been, have, have been treated. And who is responsible? Is it just the state, or is it us? You know what I mean? So there's that conversation. The other piece I want to add is 
the practical sort of, okay, how do you take then those conversations and you create practical tools um, to really keep people engaged? So we're working with three young women, young black women who are game developers. And so they're developing games. Um, let's talk about the parent one first. So that parents can begin to talk to their children of various ages. So when we talk about primary prevention, you know, we're doing it on the campuses, but we're also, let's go backwards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going backwards. And how do you do that? You can't just, you know, for parents who have, who, as you said, may not even be thinking about the concept of, you know, sexual violence, and it may not be on their radar, it's not a priority. Through gaming, after those um, conversations, those strategic conversations, they're able to sit with their children and play a game, depending on the age range, and then that sparks conversation, that sparks questions. And the games are amazing. I mean, we've got like some mock-ups already. I'm not really technologically savvy. I don't know if mock-ups are the good word for the term. <laughs> <laughs> we all understand. <laughs> but, you know, just, just to have these dialogues and begin to think about not just racism, but really begin to focus on rape, sexual assault, even sexual abuse, and begin to talk to those most at risk for offending about respect and human rights and that you do not have entitlement to another person's body. Mm. And so those are the things that we're doing. That's just one of the games. We have another game that's going to be in, in integrated into our bystander intervention mm -hmm. curriculum, our culturally specific bystander intervention mm -hmm. curriculum. And that game covers three, the three uh, uh, sort of, I call it the three phases, because in my interaction with HBCUs and with, student, with, with students, they, they're extremely honest and transparent about just, you know, this is how sexual assault happens on our campus. Mm. There are these three phases. Phase one is the identification of the person who's going to be raped that, that mm. year or that semester. Mm. And so there is a practice, there is a planning of who is going to be raped that year. And that's that phase one, the, identif the identification of the target. Phase two then moves into the grooming of the target. So, you know, there's the approach, the gaining the trust, the let's be friends, you're so cute, you fly, you hot, you this, you that. Mm -hmm. Let's start dating. We start date, they start dating. And then phase three is when the situation is, 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 has, has presented itself. You're already at the party, or you're, dr you're, you're already drugged through your drink, or you're in a room with three guys. Mm -hmm. And what's gonna happen? And so at each of those phases, we have a black woman, and you literally can you know, you know, change what she's wearing, what she looks like. Because then we also want, to, want people to think about, you know, dress the way, the victim blaming issues. Mm -hmm. How would she be dressed? What if she's not dressed that way? Even skin color, skin complexion is an issue mm -hmm. for us. So looking at that as well, is she drunk? Is she not drunk? To walk people through that. Yeah. But more importantly, at each phase, there are specific strategies for bystander intervention at phase one, when that person is targeted. If that is your fraternity brother, brother, what do you do? What can you say? How can you stop it at that point, at phase two, during that grooming phase, when you know there's an engagement that's not authentic, that is only leading to sexual assault? What can you do? What can you say to interfere and interrupt that process? At phase three, when the situation is there, you know, and, and, and I think, um, you know, Gosh, I, I don't know if you all know uh, uh, Tony Tony Porter mm -hmm. and the, the whole the, the man box where he talks about the fact that he was in a room where 
he was expected to sexually assault this mm-hmm. this young woman that a whole bunch of guys had already sexually assaulted and he didn't know what to do he was young so how many young men or young women at parties find themselves in that situation so what are the concrete steps that you can take you know it's it's, it's not a comprehensive sort of solution but using those creative means you know i think will get people to think differently. And I think Neil, when we talked on the phone, Neil said, you know, I think the whole thing is to really figure out what is it that they're using anyway? What is it that they're doing anyway, the students are doing anyway, to help themselves to access information, to empower themselves to organize, and then use those very tools to get them into a space to do this work of primary prevention. And so, you know, that's long answer. <laughs> and I guess I just would add that as a parent, mm-hmm. you know, when I came into this work, and as I said to you before, young people are really where my passion and expertise lie. Um, I very rarely talk about the fact that my, my oldest child is, is, is a girl. Um, I very rarely talked about that because working with men, what I would get was, well, of course he does this work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's got he's a got daughter. So they would ignore, back to your point, of these mm-hmm. larger kind of theories that shape people's understanding and consciousness, they would ignore um, what that said about boys and men. Mm-hmm. Right? They would, that, that didn't even, that wasn't in the room, it was unexamined. Mm-hmm. And what I recognize and what we continue to, to see now is another opportunity to engage parents, men as fathers, yes. and as I've gotten older I have more peers who are that, but the parent piece is really important when you think about a college campus are my children safe here? And so then there's a liability piece that comes up again. How do you help them see that we're not going to send our children to your institution unless it's Michigan, who I think may be doing some potentially good work in some ways. It's kind of, look, we've all got work to do, right? Yeah. And I think the other piece is, as we said, we're talking about dominant stories of society. So, you know, Farrah and I's conversation in trying to figure out how the cultural piece is going to unfold for us. We're in urban, rural, and suburban communities across the country. And so if you go into Appalachia and tell a white man who's hadn't worked for two years, his kids have no health care, and they're hungry at night, that he's got white privilege, and Maude and I were talking about this, he's going to look at you. And so you've not met him where they are in a way in which they can resonate. No different than when I go into an auditorium full of Marines who put their lives in harm way and say, oh, you bad baby killers. So I think we have to always be very creative and strategic in why intersections allow us to have honest conversations. We have a piece at Mega Separate, we talk about having those conversations as steering into the slide, which is when you're driving, for those of you who've ever driven on snow or ice, right, when you lose control of the car, what are you supposed to do? Right? Drive into the slide to regain control. Now that feels kind of counterintuitive. But what we're trying to do is help people have honest conversations, steer into the slide, look at dominant stories about race, class, orientation, identity, ethnicity. What are the traditions that promote on college campuses uh, sexual assault, right? And how do we use them to reframe, to eliminate those that are overtly problematic and enhance them or inform or improve those traditions? You know, you should be able to go to your your, your university uh, football game and maybe tailgate before the game and have a beer and eat a burger and maybe get some information about what the university is doing around our issues and then go blue or whoever it is. But what we had done, what we did as a field was ostracize that resource and say they're all the bad things that happen on this campus because the football team, not realizing, having been around athletes most of my life, 
most of these men, and the research fairs is that for men in general, most of us aren't doing these things. But to your initial question, it's unexamined. We're not looking at it. So I think what we try to say to our students around this work is, in terms of primary prevention, we need you to burn like a sun, not a comet. The self-care of this work is every day we should be doing something to prove our, improve ourselves and other people's lives. That's where our masculinity is. So then we have resources that enable us to do it the same way. I said this to Lynn earlier. I said, Lynn, no, this was new. I just thought of this. But the same way you have to stop at the crosswalk every day or stop at a stop sign, same thing about this work. Every day we should be doing something small or big. It can't only be large events or gatherings like this because my buddies are not coming here. They're, they're, they're not going to come here. And one of the young men that was going to speak said, Neil, I want to come, but I'm starting my job today. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I think that's the piece where your work with parents, I think, will be so valuable in multiple ways. I'm responsible for preparing my children. In our home, we have decisions to make. Or in, in our home, we have rules to follow. And when they're out of our home, they have decisions to make. Mm-hmm. And I want to help them make critical decisions about being in a room with three men mm-hmm. while you're drinking for the first time. Mm-hmm. But I don't want that just for my daughters. Yeah. I'm clear that my son needs to understand who he is as a man <coughs> as well. So I think where you all are going is a place that is so needed and so valuable to support what Title IX is asking for and mandating on college campuses. And as we know, our capacity has increased even more when a campus uh, legal counsel is sitting there next to the president of the region saying, right? It may be helpful for our parents who may also, in their legal or professional lives, be able to offer some pro bono insights to either what they're mandated to do, this makes you more liable, or what other universities are doing to navigate a particular nuanced legal moment that many times just scares presidents from making decisions that we think are common sense, but they see only the liability of it. So I, I just want to be in a position to support your all's work with parents as much as we can, and I think when we get to the cultural piece of it as well, Farah has spoken very well to um, examining you know, the emperor has no clothes, you know, white privilege doesn't exist for most white people. They don't think it exists. Now, we can intellectualize it, but how patriarchy plays out and massaging plays out in my young people's lives, the violence is real. It's not theoretical. And so I think that's the challenge of trying to take it from up here to every day. And so I'm really pleased that as a social worker, your clinical work may be important, but mobilizing community and navigating systems is where the infrastructures of social workers are so valuable for us. I'm Shashiti, um, and I'm from New York City Landscape and Sexual Assault. Um, I have two different things I want to share today. I have a question that I want to kind of um, see how you guys perceive or what your take is on, and that's on restorative justice and how you perceive that. But before I get to that, I, I really want to share some of the other conversations that have been happening citywide. So we do a lot of citywide work around bringing on sexual assault advocates and organizations on a yearly basis to talk about some of the priorities they have perceived in the field. So we call it a priorities meeting, nothing fancy, but it's a very helpful, productive way of understanding and feeling, knowing the pulse of the city and then driving some of the policy work based on that. Um, and in planning it, the way we run it is we do a survey, ask advocates what they see are the needs, and then go from there. The reason I bring this up is because this year, um, when we hosted our priorities meeting, um, 
one of the key pieces that came up was campus sexual assault. Now, we have been having several discussions around campus sexual assault. We've been talking about these adjudication processes. We have been talking about in, you know, how you integrate prevention into that process. But some of the things that, when we came as a group and we recognized gets left out from the table, and we talked about this today as well, but I feel like as advocates, we need to be much more mindful in how we don't let that slip, is um, we talked about, and this is advocates from New York City who talked about how oftentimes, and this happened with the DV movement, where uh, we talk about racism, we talk about culture, we talk about um, you know other kind of um, pieces and isms, but we don't talk about ageism. I entered the DV movement as a young person, and every time I'm in a group, the first thing I hear from people is how many years they have been beating the movement. But as a young person, and I kept on feeling that why is why does it matter so much? Does my fresh perspective, just my perspective from being an immigrant community of member from community of color not matter? Should I have to be here for 20 years to push something down the table? And I have struggled with that for many years to the, with the DV movement, and then I came here. And when I saw the students take such a big leap in really pushing so much of this work forward, there has been a lot of backward conversation among rape crisis programs who think they are professional, which is rightly so. They have been doing this work. They have been moving a lot of this work forward, but recognizing that Sometimes in these conversations, we are missing the true voice. This happened with the DV movement. This happened so much with the SA movement where we left. We heard from survivors. We said, I got you. I, I got your back. Now let me do the work. And I can see that happen in our work. Yes. This is a perfect environment. This is a perfect uh, model where we have the students, we have advocates, and have that discussion. But I would be honest, in the national work, um, in the regional work, in the statewide work, so much of the policy decisions are happening without involving the student. And I know Zoe talked about how oftentimes sexual assault is criminalized, domestic violence is criminalized, and we saw the unintended consequences of, for that with the you know, communities of color who could not go to the police for immigrant women. It's not an option for international student. It's not an option. I don't know what going to the police means when every time I enter the country, I have a law enforcement officer who who interrogate me like I'm a you know criminal entering the country trying to like take stuff away. I don't know if I want to go to a police and seek help. Um, so that's another piece. We I feel like we advocates have been making some of those decisions without bringing in some of these perspectives that are from the field. That's that's one piece of it. The other piece is there has been a lot of movement um, within the students, within the campuses, across different movements, as well as advocates have been taking quite a lead. However, in a consistent way, um, and I'm saying this because I came here as an international student, I heard fewer conversations, um, and I get nervous because I do not see communities of color as well represented as I would like them to be at the table. Um, international communities, New York is such a diverse place. We have so many people from different countries and they have whole different realm of pieces they're dealing with. Um, they are, they're trying to assimilate, they're trying to figure out new things. Some of these things don't make any sense to them. What are we doing to bring them in the picture? In other communities, South Asian communities, um, Arab American communities, they're struggling between what's happening in the home, how their parents are assimilating, what 
what's okay for their parents to absorb and not. So that that's a much more complex, but I wanted to place those two pieces on the table. Thank and you. then, um, <coughs> if I could ask my quick question about the restorative justice mm -hmm. model. Um, there have been conversations with the public advocate's office. There has been all these isolated conversations around whether or not restorative justice is a model that we could consider or think yeah. of in this work. And there has been, I also want to say that there has been restorative justice model has been used in some Native American communities with a lot of success. Um, especially in New Mexico, there's a program which uh, really brings young people, and they are, instead of a court system, you go through that young people's council to say whether or not. So I wondered how you felt. I have mixed feeling about that, but I wondered how you felt about that uh, piece, and if that could be applied in any way. Can I go real quick? So yeah, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Um, one, conflict resolution or restorative justice are pieces that we incorporate in our work. We think our work with young people is conception through the life, lifespan. So we really believe and support it. And yet, I also know, and I think this, I, this is not controversial, I just think it's honest. And as we're in New York, um, you know, and as TA providers for the Department of Justice, uh, we have for-profit prisons in this country. Mm -hmm. We're not really looking to rehabilitate. Mm -hmm. The lobby for for-profit prisons is large. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so until we as a field, back to intersectionality, start addressing that, mm -hmm. it's going to make it harder for immigrant communities, LGBTQ communities, uh, African-American communities, mm -hmm. diaspora communities, mm -hmm. South Asian communities, it'll make it harder for us to come forward because we know what the potential is. Mm -hmm. I just think that's something that we really have to pay attention to in terms of changing a social norm and a culture. Mm -hmm. And on college campuses to be looking more at how is it? Because it kind of crept up on us, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm. The for-profit prison kind of crept up on us. And when you explain to students that the way they make their money, and here's this, this, dual, this dualism again, I'm in, I'm in some Appalachian part of the country, and they say they're going to put a for-profit prison there, mm -hmm. and it's going to provide jobs. Mm -hmm. Man, I'm hard-pressed to not vote for the individual who says he's going to be able to get that in or she's going to be able to get that in. So I, I think that's an element of what may be prohibiting the restorative justice. Because as Americans, you know, a dear friend of mine said culturally, she's like, you know, in my community, we would never say I. But as Americans, we're taught to say I. So I think that compromises what restorative justice looks like. But working with young people is one of the ways some of the gang conflicts that we have to engage, some mm -hmm. of the mediation, whether it be uh, in, in communities between different fraternal organizations, mm -hmm. those things exist. So I, I, I'm always in support of those and, and any strategies that support that, I think it's valuable. Um, the other thing I just want to support and, 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 and agree 100% with, um, maybe not as much in this space, but you know, when, I, when, when you're talking about PhDs and, and, and becoming social workers and graduate, you're not the same young person that I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. And many times we come together, mm -hmm. and there are no young people in the room. So I don't, and, and in the moments, this is balanced. I say to many of our students, it's not because I'm smarter than you. I've just lived longer and been to Dunkin' Donuts more times than you. <laughs> I've just been there more times. And you may go into Dunkin' Donuts and see something that Dunkin' Donuts should be doing, and it's the right innovation. And so we should never limit yeah. the thinking or the options that exist with young people's innovation. I tell young people, regularly. Remember guys, the world is being designed and built by and for you. And so when we as adults start lamenting about the good old days, remember, they weren't that good. Right? So it's the balance of having both the wisdom and the innovation of youth. And that's where we as a field can maybe provide more leadership around role modeling 
how the leaders that are in here, the young people are in here, um, I want to work myself out of a job. There are so many other things I'd like to do than confront <laughs> violence every day as a parent. I mean, I'm Uber, I'm all those things. So, so I, I just think your points are really valuable and important. Yeah. I, I'm going to try and answer this as quickly as possible. But I think that the issue with, you know, people not, restorative justice and um, um, even transformative justice process is that they take a while, right? And people aren't invested enough. We need to get people invested enough to, to, to map out what those processes would look like. I know that there have been so much work done with done around restorative and transformative justice, but no one's picked that up. Not at the campus level, because they're dealing with you know Title IX, they're dealing with other sort of policy issues. And I think you're right. I think young people are the ones who need to push that forward. I think for us also, you know, when I started this work, I was in my 20s, and for me, I was proud when everybody went around the room to say. You know, I, I've been doing this work for 20, 30 years. I was like, I've just been doing it for four years. And guess what? I'm in the room and I have a voice. Right. And this is what I think needs to happen. Right. So it's like proud. It's That's like, right. what? That's right. I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, I'm badass. I'm like 20 something years old and I'm sitting here in this room. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's shifting it again to looking at what we, we're at our best when young people are there and what is it that they do that is the best of what organizing can be. That is the best of what transformative and restorative justice can look like. Within the context of our Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we don't look at, and that's a whole other you know, issue, but we don't look at the issue of restorative and transformative justice as just a one-on-one -on -one sort of process. So someone talked about the harm doer being in the space with the survivor. We look at it as a communal process. So it's about restoring community and survivor and harm doer back to each other, really holding accountable, because accountability is a big piece of that, holding accountable not just the community but the harm doer, but especially a community which allows the perpetuation of violence and which has practiced the silencing of victims. And so there are so many ways we can do this. It's an un untapped you know, resource that I think you're right, that young people can, can, can be part of. Can I just, mm -hmm. just as real quick, I want to sure. say, but the, Farah has held this for us, and, and I just appreciate it um, from our original conversation, mm -hmm. specifically, culturally specific, in terms of black men, African-American men, diaspora, however you want to discuss mm -hmm. it, melanated people, um, it's going to take significant courage for black men to be honest in our accountability to black girls and women. And to be vulnerable enough to a for-profit prison process to be responsible and accountable for the violence that we perpetrate within our own community, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that—that's a community-wide. That's a huge shift because everything that Farah laid out mm -hmm. and where our young men need to understand their responsibility <laughs> as black men, from our perspective, will be about understanding. Not only the intersections, but their responsibility <coughs> in enhancing and supporting all that contributes to preventing the violence as a whole, and that becomes a huge and a brave place. I don't tell my I tell my children if they're in harm's way to go to the fire department. Mm -hmm. I've been teaching them that since my father taught me that. Mm -hmm. Find a black mommy first, or go to the fire department. Uh -huh. So there's a huge step that we're asking our community to take, and I think there are other communities that will have to take the same kind of step, particularly as men. 
in understanding. White men are going to have to hear that other communities, particularly girls and women, are inundated by an everyday violence that goes unexamined. And you're not going to see it on you know, MSNBC or Fox News. You're not going to see it there. But you will see it in the relationships with people in your own circle if you ask back to the story piece. Thank you. Just one quick, quick thing. And, uh, you know, you, we have to think about who it is that we're engaging, right? And what it is that we're doing with the response that we're getting from the folks who are engaging with their leadership. So, you know, a lot of us ask, why do black men rape? Why do men rape? So we focus on the problem, right, of those few on the campuses or in community who are sometimes serial rapists or who are raping. I think the question we need to ask is, why is it, where, what is it about those black men that don't rape? What is going on for them? What have they learned? What have they been taught? What is it the inner sort of, you know, strength or the inner humanity. respect and humanity, you know, that they have that makes them anti-rapists, you know, as Hakim Adubuti says. Yep. How do you become an anti-rapist?